All right, here we are. Another episode of Order and Chaos. My name is Shane Norwood. I am your host. And this is the podcast that celebrates the order and chaos in all of our lives. And as always, we dedicate this episode and each and every episode to the brave men and women out there holding that thin blue line between the order and the chaos in our society. And I don't need to tell you that there is a lot of chaos going on. We are quickly veering off the road into a ditch of chaos. It's very interesting to watch. With that in mind, I had planned on releasing my extensive episode on human trafficking, specifically child sex trafficking. I decided to hold off on that for a little while. And the reason why is twofold. One, a lot of developments have come up just in the recent days uh, regarding incidents right here in the United States where children have been recovered. An increased amount of awareness regarding human trafficking in the United States. There's a lot of organizations that are really picking up steam. There's a lot of people getting involved. And so I've decided to just hold off a little bit and continue to work on that episode and make sure that we cover it the best we possibly can. The second reason, though, and more importantly, we've seen several high profile uses of force around the country involving our brave law enforcement officers, and our officers are being vilified. And until we have all the facts, which takes a significant period of time to get, we should reserve judgment. But unfortunately, there are people out there with tremendous influence that are stoking the flames and making things much more disastrous than they have to be. These are professional athletes. These are politicians. These are celebrities. People with a tremendous amount of influence. And they're coming to conclusions based on a drastically abridged version of the events. Police officers are being literally attacked in Portland, in Seattle, in Minneapolis, other parts of the nation. Simply because of the uniform that they wear. They're being accused of being a racist simply because of the uniform that they wear. And then you have those that are involved in these uses of force, which let me just tell you something. For those of you out there that think that cops are just out trying to find someone to shoot, in this climate and the way things are right now, the last thing a cop wants to do is shoot somebody. I'll take it further. The last thing a cop wants to do is use force on somebody, taser, pepper spray. Hands-on. So when an incident like this happens, take a step back and just think, if I were a cop, and I'm, I know that I'm going to be all over the news, and I know that I'm going to be vilified, and I know that my family is going to receive death threats, and I know that I'm probably going to be terminated based solely on a political agenda, then why would I take it to a deadly force level unless I felt there were zero other options? Unless I felt that it was I go home to my family or I die because those are the only two options in the overwhelming majority of use of force cases, deadly, deadly force cases, I should say. And in this climate right now, I can guarantee you that officers are second guessing when they would normally say, this is a use of force. This is a, a deadly force situation. I'm about to be critically injured or killed and I need to take immediate action to dispatch this threat. That normally would be a no-brainer. 
But in today's society, I can guarantee you that police officers are second-guessing those decisions before they make them. I wanted to revisit a lot of the things that I had talked about in episode one. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, I would encourage you to go back at some point and listen to that. It is, it is my, my story of PTSD and depression and my rock bottom and the resources that I eventually found that helped me begin to dig myself out of that, which, by the way, is a work in progress. I also want to make it clear that I am not a clinician. I am not a counselor. I am not qualified to give you any type of guidance as it relates to clinical treatment. However, I do feel that there's a tremendous amount of value in just sharing experiences. Because once you understand that someone out there has a similar experience to you, it may not be identical. It may actually may not even be close, but you see parallels that you can relate to. And maybe that encourages you to reach out and at least explore potential options. So I want to revisit the things that I had talked about in episode one and further expand on those through this book study. And the book that I'm referring to is The Body Keeps Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. The unfortunate thing about books like this, especially as it relates to cops or first responders or military personnel or people that work in professions where they need to be sharp, they need to be strong physically, mentally, they need to be on top of their game. They need to be able to go out and solve problems and have people look to them with confidence that they can do the job effectively. The problem with those types of professions is that when you see a book entitled The Body Keeps Score, the first thing you think of is, what is this hippie mumble jumble bullshit? At least that's what I did. You know, a lot of the things that I got introduced to early in therapy, I was very resistant to because it sounded like a bunch of horse shit. Cops, special forces operators, military personnel, paramedics, firefighters, doctors, nurses. They're used to being able to deal with their own issues effectively so that they can help others. In order to even come to a point where you say, I'm no longer as effective as I used to be, that's a major self admission. And to many people, They view it as personal weakness. That's why many are reluctant to go to therapy. That's why many are reluctant to read books such as this or to seek out alternative resources. They just plug away and plug away and plug away. And next thing you know, they're in a situation similar to what I put myself in. And then they're not able to help anyone. I found uh, Dr. Kolk's personal story of how he got involved or, 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 or developed an interest, if you will, in the impacts of traumatic incidents on individuals. Well, it's a story about his own father. And Dr. Kolk shares this story about his father who absolutely hated the Nazis, understandably so. Ultimately, he ended up in a Nazi concentration camp. 
I'm not sure how long he was there, but he ultimately survived in the most unlikely way. His father tells a story that he was amongst a group of other prisoners that were about to be transported to another location or perhaps to a gas chamber to be executed. And for whatever reason, one of the Nazi guards sees that Dr. Kolk's father is not feeling well, that he's been suffering from diarrhea, tells him, hey, you need to go to the bathroom and take care of that. And again, according to Dr. Kolk's father, he went to the restroom. He'd been in there for an uh, extended period of time dealing with what he was having to deal with. And when he came out, all of the, the other prisoners that he had been standing out in the grounds with were gone. They had already been transported away. And this Nazi soldier, this concentration camp guard, sees Dr. Kolk's father and says, I forgot about you. I forgot you were in the restroom, basically. There's no one else here now. Why don't you go home? A very unlikely story, but according to Dr. Kolk's father, that's exactly what happened. So Dr. Kolk's father left the concentration camp and walked back to his village and reunited with his family. Or at least whatever family was left. And that included Dr. Kolk, who was a very small child at the time. And Dr. Kolk recalled how interesting it was that his father, who had been imprisoned by the very Nazis that he detested, soon began to parent in a very similar manner as the Nazi guards treated the prisoners in the concentration camp. And one day, because he was a very outspoken child and a little rambunctious, he, I think he said he was about three or four years old when he had this conversation with his dad. And he said, Dad, I thought you hate the Nazis. And his dad says, well, I do hate the Nazis. And he says, well, then why do you act like one? Why do you treat us like we're one of the prisoners in the camp. And that began to stir his mind, as a, even as a young child, that, hey, it's interesting that people who are imprisoned or victimized by people that they despise can often find themselves through that traumatic incident treating their loved ones in a very similar fashion. So I want to go right to the book. And again, this is going to be a multi-part series. We're not going to get through a lot of it today, but we're going to talk about some key points. And I'm going to try to, after sharing a passage of the book, tell you a little bit about my own relatable accounts of the things that I dealt with, just to add some credence and some validity to what Dr. Kolk is writing about here. So chapter one, lessons from Vietnam veterans. The Tuesday after the 4th of July weekend, 1978, was my first day as a staff psychiatrist at the Boston Veterans Administration Clinic. As I was hanging a reproduction of my favorite bugle painting, The Blind Leading the Blind, on the wall of my new office, I heard a commotion in the reception area down the hall. A moment later, a large, disheveled man was in a stained three-piece suit carrying a copy of Soldier of Fortune magazine under his arm. Burst through the door. He was so aggravated and so clearly hung over that I wondered how I could possibly help this hulking man. I asked him to take a seat and tell me what I could do for him. His name was Tom. 
Ten years earlier, he had been in the Marines, doing his service in Vietnam. He had spent the holiday weekend holed up in his downtown Boston law office, drinking and looking at old photographs rather than with his family. He knew from previous years' experience that the noise, the fireworks, the heat, and the picnic in his sister's backyard against the backdrop of the dense early summer foliage, all of which reminded him of Vietnam, would drive him crazy. When he got upset, he was afraid to be around his family because he behaved like a monster with his wife and two young boys. The noise of his kids made him so agitated that he would storm out of the house to keep himself from hurting them. Only drinking himself into oblivion or riding his Harley Davidson at dangerously high speeds helped him to calm down. Nighttime offered no relief. His sleep was consistently interrupted by nightmares about an ambush and a rice paddy back in Nam, in which all the members of his platoon were killed or wounded. He also had terrifying flashbacks in which he saw dead Vietnamese children. The nightmares were so horrible that he dreaded falling asleep as he often stayed up for most of the night, drinking. In the morning, his wife would find him passed out on the living room couch, and she and the boys had to tiptoe around him while she made them breakfast before taking them to school. Filling me in on his background, Tom said that he had graduated from high school in 1965, the valedictorian of his class. In line with his family tradition of military service, he enlisted in the Marine Corps immediately upon graduation. Athletic, intelligent, and an obvious leader, Tom felt powerful and effective after finishing boot camp, a member of a team that was prepared for just about anything. In Vietnam, he quickly became a platoon leader in charge of eight other Marines. Surviving slogging through the mud while being strafed by machine gun fire and leave people feeling pretty good about themselves and their comrades. At the end of his tour of duty, Tom was uh, honorably discharged, and all he wanted to do was put Vietnam behind him. Outwardly, that's exactly what he did. He attended college on the GI Bill, graduated from law school, married his high school sweetheart, and had two sons. Tom was upset about how difficult it was to feel any affection for his wife, even though her letters had kept him alive in the madness of the jungle. Tom went through the motions of living a normal life, hoping that by faking it, he would learn to become his own self again. He had now had a thriving law practice and a picture-perfect family, but he sensed he wasn't normal. He felt dead inside. Although Tom was the first veteran I'd ever encountered on a professional basis, Many aspects of his story were familiar to me. I grew up in a post-war Holland, plain and bombed out buildings, the son of a man who had been such an outspoken opponent of the Nazis that he had been sent to an internment camp. My father never talked about the war experience, but he was given to outbursts of explosive rage that stunned me as a little boy. How could the man I heard quietly going down the stairs every morning to pray and read the Bible while the rest of the family slept have such a terrifying temper? How could someone whose life was devoted to the pursuit of social justice be so filled with anger? I witnessed the same puzzling behavior in my uncle who had been captured by the Japanese in the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia, and sent to a slave labor camp in Burma where he worked on the famous bridge over the river Kwai. He also rarely mentioned the war and he too often erupted into uncontrollable rages. 
As I listened to Tom, I wondered if my uncle and my father had had nightmares and flashbacks. If they too had felt disconnected from their loved ones and unable to provide any real pleasure in their lives. Somewhere in the back of my mind, there must have been memories of my frightened and often frightening mother whose own childhood trauma was sometimes alluded to and I now believe was frequently reenacted. She had the unnerving habit of fainting when I asked her about what her life was like as a little girl and then blaming me for making her so upset. Reassured by my obvious interest, Tom settled down to tell me just how scared and confused he was. He was afraid that when he was becoming just like his father, who was always angry and rarely talked with his children, except to compare them unfavorably with his comrades who had lost their lives around Christmas 1944 during the Battle of the Bulge. As the session was drawing to a close, I did what doctors typically do. I focused on the one part of Tom's story I thought I understood, his nightmares. As a medical student, I had worked in sleep laboratory, observing people's sleep and dream cycles, and had assisted in writing some articles about nightmares. I had also participated in some early research on the beneficial effects of the psychoactive drugs that were coming to use in the 1970s. So while I lacked a true grasp of the scope of Tom's problems, the nightmares were something I could relate to. And as an enthusiastic believer in better living through chemistry, I prescribed a drug that was found to be effective in reducing the incidence and severity of nightmares. I scheduled Tom for a follow-up two weeks later. Now, coming away from the book for a little bit, he goes on to say that Tom came back for his follow-up and he asked him, you know, being a a very proud MD at this point, I'm going to prescribe a a medication that I know is going to work for this this guy's problems. I'm going to make them all better. So the doctor asks, hey, Tom, you know, how'd that work out for you? How did that medicine turn out? Tom says, I didn't take it. Now, of course, this bewildered this doctor because he's, he's given him the solution. Here's the solution to all your problems. I gave it to you and you don't want the solution. And this was Tom's quote in response. He says, I realized that if I take the pills, the nightmares will go away. Then I will have abandoned my friends and their deaths will have been in vain. I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam. I want to talk about that a little bit because one of the things that I struggled with in a very profound and disturbing way were nightmares. In fact, they were so bad that they were classified as night terrors. Now, these were directly related to the latter part of my career where I was tasked with investigating child sex crimes. And while I was not in that unit for an extended period of time, I had a significant amount of cases back-to-back that were horrific. While I was dealing with that, I was also dealing with issues involving my own son of horrible things that he had been exposed to and things that he was dealing with in his personal life. And we were working to try to get him through those things. And unfortunately, Many of those things were hidden from me, so I did not understand the gravity of them. But I can only imagine if I did at the time that things, as impossible as as it is to even comprehend this, things may have been much worse for me. But I had these correlated sources of trauma. And 
one of the interesting things that I found about this is that being personally exposed to, say, being involved in a physical altercation with a suspect, being injured in an altercation, seeing a grown adult commit suicide, a very graphic scene where brain matter is splattered throughout the room or someone who slits their wrist or someone who hangs themselves, you know, these images that most people would, would feel like they'd be seared in your memory forever. And that's what you'd have nightmares about. But for me, and one thing that's been encouraging to me and getting to know a lot more people out there and a lot more law enforcement officers that are in similar situations as me or that have experienced similar, similar incidents as me, I'm, I'm hearing a common theme. And that theme is this. I don't care as much about what happened to me, what I was exposed to, the things that I went through. It was the things that I could not prevent. It was the things that happened to others. It was the things that happened to those who could not defend themselves, the things that happened to people that I care about, the things that happened to people I love that I could not intervene in prior to make, make sure that they didn't happen. And that's exactly how I felt. It wasn't enough for me to be the guy who got to interview the child and get a disclosure about abuse and then work up a case and get a suspect in custody. By then, it was already too late. By then, the, the, the child had already been victimized. The child will never be the same. Children who suffer from sexual abuse go on to have, a very high percentage of them go on to have very significant problems in relationships and in life in general. The victimization of a child lasts a lifetime. It's very, very unlike someone who gets robbed at an ATM or gets their car stolen. These are two completely different types of victims and two completely different types of trauma. As I was reading this, I found it very interesting that the nightmares were not about him being shot at. They weren't about him nearly losing his life. It was focused on his comrades, his brothers in arms that were not able to come home with him. And so, in memory of their sacrifice. He didn't want to take any medication that would bring him any relief. Tom's need to live out his life as a memorial to his comrades taught me that he was suffering from a condition much more complex than simply having bad memories or damaged brain chemistry or altered fear circuits in the brain. Before the ambush in the rice paddy, Tom had been a devoted and loyal friend, someone who enjoyed life with many interests and pleasures. In one terrifying moment, trauma had transformed everything. He goes on to say, during my time at the VA, I got to know many men who responded similarly. In the initial stages of treatment, this was something that was very eye-opening to me, and I was very happy that this came along at the very beginning of the book because it made me realize that PTSD, depression, trauma is not always, very often is not the direct result of something that happens directly to you. But it can be something that happens to someone you care about, someone you love, someone you were sworn to protect, 
a brother in arms, a comrade, a friend, a child. And so you have this combination, I, I believe, in Tom's case of survivor, survivor's guilt. He gets to come home. But his comrades never got that chance. They never got to come home and have a family, have children, have a career. Then you couple that with the fact that what could I have done differently? If I would have engaged the enemy in a more effective manner, could I have saved my comrades? If I would have perhaps found a different place for us to be at that time, if we hadn't have been in that rice paddy, if I'd have found a more tactically sound position, would they all be alive? And then that second guessing turns into misery, which is often manifested in nightmares. And so when I read that he didn't want to take the medication because he felt as if he needed to have those nightmares so that their memory would not be forgotten, I can relate in the sense that in the initial stages, I felt as if I needed to feel the child's suffering in order to fuel me to be a better investigator. But that's not, that is definitely not sustainable. I want to get into this point, get away from the book a little bit. Love or what we perceive to be love uh, can be a key factor in the root of our traumatic stress. So Tom's story of his comrades and what a rational person would see as a seemingly unfathomable way to deal with it by not taking the medication. You know that there's a medication that will help you with nightmares, yet you choose not to take it because you feel that you need to have the nightmares. Well, to a rational person, that seems ludicrous, but that's not uncommon for people that are dealing with traumatic incidents, with people that have suffered tremendous loss. They fear that if they get help, get treatment, that that feeling that they have, the memory of that person, the love that they had for that person will fade. And since they weren't able to be there to help that person in the, in the first place to prevent this incident from occurring, then why do they deserve any relief themselves? So many traumatic incidents, including this story and many, many other stories are rooted in love and devotion. It could be love between family members. It could be love between friends, coworkers. And often what is overlooked in the scientific study of trauma is the undeniable connection between human beings. Some people call it energy. Some people call it chi. Some people call it spirituality, whatever it is, whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put on it. But undeniably, there is a connection between human beings. I've met many people, myself included, that have had a feeling about a loved one. Maybe it's a feeling that something bad had happened. Maybe it's a feeling that something's not quite right. And then sure enough, you find out that right around that same time you had that feeling, they were involved in a horrific car crash or some other tragic incident. That's not something that could be overlooked when we're discussing how to deal with, tra with trauma in our lives. 
especially as it relates to what we call vicarious trauma. Meaning, we are personally impacted by the trauma of that other people that we love or care about experience themselves. That simply hearing about the trauma, that simply hearing the person that we love recount their traumatic experience traumatizes us ourselves. Well, a lot of people would view that as being weak-minded. I view it as you are in some way, shape, or form that I do not believe science can explain at this point, but people are interpersonally connected in one way, shape, or form. People that care about each other, that love each other, that are close to one another have this unexplainable connection. I also believe this is true with first responders. You hear about a lot of nurses. You hear a lot about uh, a lot about doctors, firefighters, paramedics, police officers that have a very difficult time when a patient dies, or if a surgery doesn't go well, or whatever it may be. They blame themselves for the outcome. They experience a similar level of trauma as the person directly exposed to the trauma. And I believe that that is all a result of the interconnectedness of human beings. And I believe that there's powerful evidence for that. One of the stories that I know all cops out there can relate to involving the unexplainable nature of quote-unquote love are those repeat domestic calls you go to. The, 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 domestic, the, the type of domestic where when the dispatcher is sending you to the call, they advise you that it's a domestic dispute and they start to say the address and they get through the numbers and you don't even need to hear the street because you already know where you're going because you've been to that house so many times. And then you get to the call, the victim is abused or has been hurt in one way, shape, or form by the offender. And maybe it's enough to affect an arrest and you take the offender in the custody only to have the other party attack you, cuss you out, cry, be upset that they're quote, loved one is going to jail. And cops walk away from those calls knowing they're going to be back within a matter of days, a matter of weeks. As soon as this person's out of custody, they'll be right back over to the house and they cannot understand why someone would stay in a situation that is obviously to someone of a healthy mind, to someone that is relatively rational, that does not have an, a direct relationship to these parties outside of a law enforcement relationship, it's, it's inconceivable that someone would stay in that type of situation. And yet out of quote-unquote love, people tend to expose themselves to repeated incidents of trauma for a, a very similar reason as Tom chose not to take medication for his nightmares. It could be codependency. It could be that emotional human connection I was talking about earlier. 
Maybe it's because they feel they have no place else they can go. Maybe they feel like that's the best they can get. But every single one of those irrational reasons to stay in that type of situation is based on the foundation of love coupled with traumatic exposure. And it's very fascinating. If you as a law enforcement officer can take that into account when you're dealing with these situations, it might help you understand. It doesn't make the job any easier. You're still going to go out to the same house and you're still going to be dealing with the same people and you're still going to be taking the same person to jail over and over and over again. But having that basic understanding as to why people do what they do when they're exposed to repeated trauma just might help you understand what appears to be irrational in this person's mind, in this victim's mind. It's completely rational. Going back to the book. We don't really want to know what soldiers go through in combat. I want to stop there real quick because I had heard a quote one time, and this was long before all this mess, of every single use of force incident being blown up on CNN and other networks and cops vilified as criminals and, you know, all this stuff. But I remember a quote when I was newly a new officer and it said something to the effect of people want the cops to do their job, meaning citizens in your community, they want the cops to do their job. They just don't want to know how you do it. In other words, go out there and take out the trash and do what you need to do. But I just don't want to see how it's done. And police work is dirty business. It doesn't matter how good of a cop you are. It doesn't matter how much integrity you have. It doesn't matter how strongly in your heart you hold that oath. At the end of the day, police work, it's dirty work. Police officers deal with the worst of society. And they are the first line of defense for the community, which means sometimes they have to defend the community in ways that none of us want to see. Civilians don't want to see someone being shot multiple times, even though that might be absolutely necessary. They don't want to see it. No amount of force is something that the average day-to-day citizen wants to be exposed to. So when it's something as traumatic as a shooting, where a suspect may be shot multiple times in order to terminate that threat. Well, that's very disturbing for the general public to see. It seems wrong because all you're seeing is just that, the end of that incident, not everything leading up to it, not that person's background, not what that person's intentions were, none of those things. It's all about the shots that were fired in that moment. Well, the same thing is true about our soldiers in combat. Can you imagine if soldiers in combat were followed around by news cameras or by cell phones and civilians were to see some of the horrific things our soldiers are exposed to and have to do in order to win? There are some things that we are just better off not knowing. Back to the book. We do not want to know how many children are being molested and abused in their own society, or how many couples, almost a third, as it turns out, engage in violence at some point during their relationship. If I sat here and told you about every single child abuse case that I ever worked in 20 years, 
you'd be sick to your stomach. You wouldn't want to hear it. You know why? Because you don't need to know. You need to know what goes on. You need to know a few incidents. You need to know the gravity of just how bad it can be, but you don't need to know every single detail of every single investigation. Because quite frankly, most people couldn't handle it. The investigators a lot of times can't handle it. Yet nowadays, the media, social media, they want everything exposed and out in the open. Well, be careful what you wish for. Because police officers, our military personnel, our social workers, they deal with the absolute most evil of evil in the world. Be careful to what you want or what you think you want to be exposed to. Back to the book. We want to think of families as safe havens in a heartless world and of our own country as populated by enlightened, civilized people. We prefer to believe that cruelty occurs only in faraway places like the Congo. It is hard enough for observers to bear witness to pain. Is it any wonder then that the traumatized individuals themselves cannot tolerate remembering it and that they often resort to using drugs, alcohol, or self-mutilation to block out their unbearable knowledge? Tom and his fellow veterans became my first teachers in my quest to understand how lives are shattered by overwhelming experiences and in figuring out how to enable them to feel fully alive again. You know, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but one of the major contributors to me ultimately just going into a very dark place in my life that led to some horrific consequences was the struggles that I was not able to be there for the children that I investigated. In other words, as I previously mentioned, not being able to prevent their abuse. And that's why I say that, and, and the research tends to agree that a tremendous amount of significant trauma is based out of what we understand as love, devotion, care for others. I would interview these kids and many of them were so young that they didn't even understand the gravity of what had happened to them. They knew it was bad. But what I knew is they were going to live with this the rest of their lives that eventually a point in their life is going to come where the check is going to get cashed. And the trauma that they did not understand the gravity of at five will manifest itself in horrific ways at 15, at 25, and so on. I'd look at these beautiful children and I'd wonder how anyone could force them to commit oral sex 
how anyone could forcibly sodomize a young, innocent child that just wants to play and learn and be a kid. And forgive me for being graphic, but it blows my mind that any adult, no matter how evil they may be, no matter how sick that they may be, could ever bring themselves to a point where they could ejaculate in a child's mouth on their body. Where they could forcibly, vaginally rape a little, tiny child. How they could give a little, tiny, innocent child a sexually transmitted infection. Those kinds of thoughts breed rage. They breed an irrational self-blame. And I don't know that I can speak for anyone else. I can only attest to my own experiences, but that self-blame manifested itself through a desire for relief, but yet not wanting relief because I did not want what happened to those children to be forgotten. It's the most confusing state to be in. Because you know that there are probably resources out there to help you deal with this, but you almost feel as if you owe it to these children to feel it yourself. Because you were not there to help them prior to this happening to them. Again, in my current state, able to look back on this, I understand how irrational that thought is. But in the moment, it makes perfect sense. And then one of the issues that I had is once I was out of that unit and was injured on the job and was home on workers' comp and it, it appeared based on what I was being told that my career was going to be over as a result of this injury that now I can never go back to work and help any other kids. Now I can never go back to work and protect those that can't protect themselves. And my son is dealing with his own issues and doesn't want much to do with his father. Between all of those things, you feel a tremendous sense of loss. More importantly, you feel a tremendous sense of uselessness. You lose your identity. And those are very, very dangerous things to perceive to have lost. Love, self-blame, they all fueled my downfall. And ironically, they, per- they further prevented me from helping those that I wanted to help. Back to the book. Maybe even worse for Tom than the recurring flashbacks of the ambush was the memory of what happened afterward. I could easily imagine how Tom's rage about his friend's death had led to the calamity that followed. It took him months of dealing with this paralyzing shame before he could tell me about it. The day after the ambush, Tom went into a frenzy to a neighboring village, killing children shooting an innocent farmer, and raping a Vietnamese woman. After that, it became truly impossible for him to go home again in any meaningful way. 
How can you face your sweetheart and tell her that you brutally raped a woman just like her? Or watch your son take his first step when you're reminded of the child you murdered? Tom experienced the death of Alex as if it part of him had been forever destroyed, the part that was good and honorable and trustworthy. Trauma, whether it is the result of something you've done or something done to you, almost always makes it difficult to engage in intimate relationships. After you have experienced something so unspeakable, how do you learn to trust yourself or anyone else again? Or conversely, how can you surrender to an intimate relationship after you've been brutally violated? Tom kept showing up faithfully for his appointments as I had become for him a lifeline, the father he'd never had, and Alex who had survived the ambush. It takes enormous trust and courage to allow yourself to remember. But one of the hardest things for traumatized people is to confront their shame about the way they behaved during a traumatic incident. Whether it is objectively warranted, as in the commission of atrocities, or not, as in the case of a child who tries to placate her abuser. I can relate to this in a similar fashion. And while I may not have committed the atrocities that are described as Tom's response for the killing of his friend, but I lost my law enforcement career on two occasions for self-medication with alcohol and getting behind the wheel of a vehicle. To this day, I live with tremendous shame for those actions. I live with the knowledge that it could have turned out to be catastrophic in comparison to the relatively benign nature of my DUIRS. Fortunately for everyone else involved, I was asleep in my car on two occasions. And I look back on that now and through the assistance of therapy and other resources that I've turned to. And I understand why when I would drink at home or when I'd go out and have drinks, why I didn't want to be home. So if I was drinking at home, I wanted to leave. And if I was out, I didn't want to go home because home, well, that was the place that I had nightmares. Home was the place that I had memories. Home was the place that I had guilt and shame and fear. And so while home should be the safe haven, the place that you go to get away from work, to get away from the troubles in life, that was not the case for me. One of the, back to the book, one of the first people to write about this phenomenon was Sarah Haley, who occupied an office next to mine at the VA clinic. In an article entitled, when the patient reports atrocities, which became a ma major impetus for the ultimate creation of the PTSD diagnosis, she discussed the well-nigh intolerable difficulty of talking about and listening to the horrendous acts that are often committed by soldiers in the course of their war experience. It's hard enough to face the suffering that has been inflicted by others, but deep down, many traumatized people are even more haunted by the shame they feel about what they did themselves or what they did not do 
under certain circumstances. They despise themselves for how terrified, dependent, excited, or enraged they felt. In later years, I encountered a similar phenomenon in victims of child abuse. Most of them suffer from agonizing shame about the actions they took to survive and maintain a connection with the person who abused them. This was particularly true if the abuser was someone close to the child, someone the child depended on, as is so often the case. The result can be confusion about whether one was a victim or a willing participant, in which turn leads to bewilderment about the difference between love and terror, pain, and pleasure. I talked about in a previous podcast about the unintended consequences of children being home during this COVID-19 pandemic and how a very, very large percentage of the abuse suffered by children happens in their own home and that now the abusers would have 24-7 access to the child to carry out whatever evil deeds they chose on the child unmitigated and the child would have nowhere to go for relief. They're stuck at home 24-7 to be victimized even more so than they were when they were able to go to traditional classrooms. When I was working as a sex crimes investigator, the vast majority of all the reports that came in regarding potential child abuse, child sexual abuse, came from mandated reporters, teachers, counselors, etc. And now, those children have nowhere to go. They have no one to report their disclosures. And I can only imagine what must be happening in homes right now as you listen to this across this nation. What's worse is many of these children are going to grow up and have the long-term impacts and effects that we just talked about that the author of the book just described of how they will feel as if they are to blame. And to me, that's unacceptable. It's tragic. It's horrific. And having had firsthand exposure as well, the same as countless law enforcement officers around this nation. If you sit and allow yourself to ponder that, it is a very horrifying thought. And then you go on to the even longer term consequences where many of these children will grow up and they will become parents themselves and they will perpetuate the cycle. They will most likely abuse their own children. But maybe they choose to attempt to break the cycle. Somehow they find the strength or the professional resources or a combination of both to change the way that they raise their own children. But who's to say that they won't be haunted by shame, regret, 
the pain that was associated with their childhood, feeling as if they could have done something to prevent their own victimization. This is especially true with those that were victims of sexual abuse. And I've heard this on many occasions and I've read many accounts of victims of sexual abuse as children that grow up to feel that maybe they perhaps were willing participants. It's beyond tragic. It's beyond horrific. And that's why I'm so passionate about this podcast and utilizing my experience in law enforcement, my desire to learn as much as I can from professionals to share that information with you to hopefully bring those professionals on the podcast to be able to have a conversation about these very real problems and issues. I can think of no better reason to have a podcast or to have a mission in life than to protect those that cannot protect themselves. And while I can no longer do that in a law enforcement capacity, I can use my law enforcement experience along with the help of others that are still active in law enforcement, professionals in the field, passionate lay people, to make a difference together. And I think we're going to leave it at that. We're an hour in. And like I told you, this is going to be a multi-part podcast. Next week, or next podcast, I should say, I want to discuss the portion of this very first chapter that discusses being numb and the consequences of when your body attempts to protect itself by numbing out those emotions. You know, so I know that there was a lot of deep information in this podcast, a lot of things that were pretty difficult to listen to. But I truly appreciate all of you hanging in there. But we all need to hear this information. Cops, first responders, citizens, parents, caregivers, teachers, as difficult as it is to hear these things, they are important. And we need to be aware of them. And so with that, I'll go ahead and end it. I want to thank all of you for your continued support. If you haven't yet, please follow me on social media at Ordering Chaos Podcast on Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook, Ordering Chaos Podcast. I'm Shane Norwood. This is Ordering Chaos. We'll talk to you soon.